This is the Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. Average and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that the following episode may contain the names and voices of people who are deceased. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the many lands across Australia and pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We recognise their enduring connection to the lands and waterways of this country and thank them for protecting and maintaining this country for us and future generations. In this series, our host Cameron Edwards interviews deadly physios from around Australia. And by deadly, we mean something that is awesome or fantastic. So join us as we have a yarn and enjoy some deadly stories. Yama. Or hello in Gamilaroi, and welcome back to another episode of The Deadly Physios. We've been so thankful to have the listeners along with us on this journey, and if you've listened up until now, I can tell you that this podcast is not slowing down. In fact, today I am very privileged to announce a guest that I'm very excited to interview, and that is Marilyn Morgan, or Maz. Maz, how are you going today? Really well, thanks, Cam. And Kaya from Noongar Country? That is good to hear. Now, Maz, one of the reasons I'm so excited to interview you today is because, number one, it's quite difficult to get a hold of you because of where you are. And I want our listeners to acknowledge and recognise that we are interviewing physios from all around Australia, in remote areas and in metropolitan areas as well. Before we go into your story a little bit more, I want to acknowledge the country that I'm on, recording from the Darug country out here in Western Sydney. And Maz, I was wondering if you could tell us where you're recording from today. Thanks, Cam. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the Manang people who are part of the Noongar Nation, the elders past, present and emerging. Manang country is in the southwest, down right on the south coast of Western Australia. Towns around are Pemberton and Manchmup, tall carry trees, very close to the coast. Sounds like a beautiful place, Maz. Where I am here in Western Sydney, we don't necessarily see the beach all too often or the coast. But again, on Darug land, there is still so many beautiful things. We've got the tall eucalyptus and that bushland out here, as well as the Parramatta River. Now, I want to know a little bit more about you, Maz, and about your story and about how you became a physio. To do that, I want to understand a little bit about your cultural history. So we know where you're speaking to us from today, but can you talk to us a little bit about your mob? My mob is actually Western Arrenta and Wiradjuri people. Western Arrenta is near Tennant Creek and Wiradjuri is Western New South Wales. I didn't know that that's where my people were until I was quite old, probably in my 40s, after doing a link-up program. Prior to that, I grew up on the east coast of Australia and thought I was a saltwater person and part of the Koori Nation. My family have been intergenerational, stolen generations, so that dislocation of parent to child across a number of generations makes knowing who your people are and where your country are is very difficult. But we have some great facilities nowadays for children of the stolen generations to be able to link back to their families. So it's really, really good. Yeah, I love the resources that are available nowadays uh, in terms of linking up ancestry and things like that. And it's really encouraging that, you know, even 
even after 40 years, your story is that you were able to make that link. And that's quite empowering, especially after the dislocation that your family has experienced, as you've mentioned. And I want to get a little bit more into that later on in this episode. But before I do, our listeners may be wondering, what makes Marilyn Morgan a deadly physio? And we've invited you on here. And uh, I know for a fact you're a deadly physio, and I look up to you all that you've done in pioneering for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, not even specifically within physiotherapy, but on broader terms. And I'm wondering, you know, as a little bit of an interview question that you might get at a job interview almost, what makes Marilyn a deadly physio? I'm really passionate about physio and really passionate about Aboriginal culture. And when you bring them together, there are fabulous, deadly combination. When you track back 40,000 years ago in Western Aranda country and across the Pitjantjara lands, there are people there called Nunkaris who are the healers or Marabran people. And in Aboriginal society prior to colonisation, people grew into roles or were born into roles. So you might be a law person or you might be a healing person, you may be a hunter, you could be a warrior, those sorts of things. And um, the healers of the central desert of Australia are just amazing. And they're now doing workshops at various conferences. So people should look out and see if they can book into a Nunkery workshop. And they've just produced a book on the ABC Press. And as you read it, their stories, technically what they do And the heading is, it's a lot like physio. And it certainly is. It's about hands-on. It's about being able to read your patient without necessarily verbal cues. And it's about providing good care, well-evidenced care over time to make people fit and healthy. You've nailed it on the head there. And I love that way that you've said it, the deadly combination of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and physiotherapy. And again, I I really want to dig deep into that subject later on. But I have to say that I have seen this deadly combination epitomized in you from that first moment I met you back in 2017 now, I believe it is, which is um, not that long ago, but a couple of years down the track now. I'm wondering, how did you end up as a physiotherapist, could you tell us a little bit of a, a story about what motivated you to become a physio? It's a long story, and it goes back to when I was young, and my father had been taken away from his mother when he was a two-year-old, and his mother found him when he was about 35, and I perchance had the opportunity to meet her. And she told me the story of how she'd grown up and done nursing and how that was a fabulous job. You could help people. You earned money and uh, you had a place to live and you had food because people lived at the nurse's home. She did her nursing in about 1912 at a hospital in Sydney called Prince Henry Hospital or the Coast Hospital. And in 1914, she went to North Africa as part of the Royal Australian Nurses Corps. And she nursed uh, through the First World War. And when she came back, she'd met someone and she had two children. And then in about 1925, her partner disappeared, died. We're not sure what happened to him. 
and the authorities came and took her children away. And she caught up with my father, as I say, when he was about 35, and her telling me that being a nurse was a good thing to do. I was spectacularly unsuccessful at school, and I think a lot of Aboriginal kids can be marginalised and treated according to their ethnic background instead of their potential. And so I left school at 15 and looked to what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And I had no training for anything. So I decided that I'd be a nurse, not because I thought I'd like to take care of people, but it sounded like a good job. I looked for a place to do nursing and chose a hospital based on its Aboriginal name. And that was Wimala Home for the Incurables at Top Ride in Sydney. And I presented myself there at 15 to become a nurse and I was too young. And they must have felt sorry for me because they took me on as a nurse's assistant. And I lived at the nurse's home and I got to know the patients. Being an institutionalised child myself, I was happy in this environment where people were caring in the institution instead of angry and vicious. And um, there were 300 patients in the incurables home. So there were multiple sclerosis, motor neurone disease, severe Parkinson's, head injuries, quadriplegics, all sorts of different and rare conditions. And all the patients there were really kind. And they convinced me that I shouldn't do nursing, that I should do physio, because if they'd had physio, they wouldn't be in the incurables home. So I went back to school the year after and did my leaving and got a Commonwealth scholarship to study physio in about 1968, that was, I think. And I continued to live at the nursing home and work night duty and study during the day. So that taught me lots of amazing things. First of all, patient handling. So by the time I got to finally a physio, I'd already had four or five years of patient handling with patients that had pain or contractures or disabilities. And I was just pleased to be pursuing something that was going to help people that I really liked. It was that personal connection and inspiration of those people. That is a really inspiring story in that, as you mentioned, you know, you, in your own words, spectacularly miserable at school and have managed to accomplish so much in your career as a physiotherapist. And I want to talk to a point, you know, this storytelling idea is so integral to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. And out of that has come a modern coined phrase, truth-telling. I'm wondering why truth-telling is so important and what it means to you. I think that most Australians are totally unaware of the history of this country. And it's been hidden from them one because of shame about how they treated the uh, original inhabitants and because economics and economic development pushes people to ignore the things that they should be sensitive to. So the difference between investment and ethical investment, which we're seeing now with the issues of Rio Tinto blowing up the Jukenborge caves, where super funds are now saying sorry, we're only going to invest in ethical companies. And I think that was really the issue that people don't know. And it's been very hard to try and tell the truth to people or get people to acknowledge the truth. Probably until about 10 years ago, 
when the reconciliation movements really pushed forward. And uh, the recent, or four years ago, Uluru Statement from the Heart that calls for truth-telling. Many non-Aboriginal Australians thought that the apartheid regime in South Africa was terrible. They were happy to boycott the sporting events and they were quite happy to have Australia boycott South Africa economically as well. And when Nelson Mandela was released from prison and became the president, many non-Aboriginal Australians I knew thought that it was really great that in South Africa they were doing truth-telling and reconciliation. And really there's no reconciliation without truth-telling or education. And so a lot of my work these days is around education about the truth of the country. Most people I meet, either in training sessions or socially or professionally, have no idea what the first act of the Australian Parliament was in 1901. And, you know, for people who are listening to the podcast, think about, do you know what the first act of the Australian Parliament was in 1901? Yeah. It was actually the Immigration Restriction Act, White the White Australia policy, and it wasn't repealed until the late 70s. And they had quite a campaign. You had badges. There was even a song. There was a lot of merchandise went with um, the White Australia policy campaign. So when you have that sort of racist approach by government back in the day, which was about trying to keep Afghan cameleers and Chinese gold miners from entering the country, but it left White Australia with an issue about what to do with the dark-skinned people that were already here. And then the policies of government through the 1900s was to uh, lock people up on reserves, restrict their rights to education, to work, to go hunting, and the final straw was to take away the children. So that they did a lot of this and the rest of Australia didn't see. And it's not been in the government's, I don't know, passion frame to actually start to educate non-Aboriginal Australians or incoming immigrant Australians as to what the history of the country is. So for me, truth-telling is really, really important. You need to know the history to understand why Aboriginal people in the situation they are today, why they're so highly represented in prisons and police interactions, why their school rates are so poor, why their health rates are so poor. And if you don't know what the history is and you haven't heard the truth of this country, then none of it will make sense to you. Once that truth-telling is out of the way, then people can also learn about what was here prior to colonisation, which is 60,000 years of a magnificent culture, the oldest living culture on the planet. And Aboriginal people are so gracious. And I've never met an Aboriginal person who doesn't want all of non-Aboriginal Australia to actually own the previous 60,000 years and enjoy that history and the things that you learn from it, like land management and health care and the spiritual stories and the creation stories. And they're just amazing. You've really summed up, I think, for our listeners, a starting point in both understanding truth-telling as a concept, but also in commencing the journey for them to actually start to investigate that history. Now, if we bring it to the current day, there are some concepts which are quite relevant 
and they are reconciliation and closing the gap. I'm wondering if you can speak to those concepts and what they mean to you personally. Closing the gap is simple and mechanical in terms of what it is. There is a disparity in Aboriginal health that means that we will most likely die 10 to 17 years earlier than our peers who are non-Aboriginal, that our rates of demise from undiagnosed cancer is 40% higher than other people in the country, that our vision and our hearing as a result of neglect of children and their health means that on average Aboriginal people are hearing impaired by the age of 10 and visually impaired by the age of 40. Now that's a really terrible thing when you consider that the evidence shows that Aboriginal children are born with 10% better lateral vision in each eye and 10% better hearing than their non-Aboriginal peers. So that's the loss over time due to neglectful and biased health systems, systemically racist health systems that see people of colour and certainly Aboriginal people not treated the same and not treated equitably at hospitals and health centres. And the reflections that I hear at hospitals from health professionals, doctors, nurses, physios about Aboriginal people and, and simple examples of my colleagues as I was you know, in my 40s saying to me, I don't know why you bother treating Aboriginal people with chest problems. And I said, well, why wouldn't you treat Aboriginal people who've got chest problems? Well, they're just going to smoke anyway, so it's just wasting your time and not realising that there's so much more to treating a chest than doing deep breathing and coughing. Mm. It's about education. It's about making people healthy. And that's a role that I see physios have in preventative health. Yeah. Uh, in terms of reconciliation, that's a whole different ball game. But what we have seen and do have evidence for is that of the um, social determinants of health, racism is the main cause of ill health of Aboriginal people, particularly cardiovascular disease. You're exposed from when you're tiny to racist attitudes and every time you are, it ups your blood pressure, it uh, makes your, men your mental health deteriorate and generally you become unhealthier and unhealthier. And the cardiovascular rates, myocardial infarcts, are really common in Aboriginal people 35 and up, which they put down to the social determinants of health being racism. So I must know probably six people that have died in the last three months from myocardial infarction who are 35 or under. You know, poor diagnosis. Not necessarily poor lifestyles. One of them was training for his bronze medallion so he could work with kids, all these sorts of things. Also a reflection of lifestyle. Prior to colonisation, Aboriginal people walked on average 30 miles a day to find their food. There was no alcohol. There was no sugar. There was no carbs. So that it was a fairly pristine diet with lots of exercise. There was no dairy either. It's really hard to milk a kangaroo. <laughs> Oh, dear. Yes, I don't think I've ever seen anyone milk a kangaroo, that's for sure. Before I delve into what can we do as physios, what can we do for our listeners as the general public, I want to come into 
and interrupt this train of thought with a segment that I think is quite pertinent to put in here, and that's based off the ABCs, You Can't Ask That. And I'm going to give you a phrase. You've mentioned it a little bit, but I want to say it to you and then get your response to it, because I'm sure that you have heard people say this, and I have also. And that is that Australia isn't racist anymore. People aren't being stolen away anymore. And why can't we just move on? What are your thoughts on that, Maz? I think many people would like to think they weren't racist. And I think many people don't know that they're racist. Oh, they don't know what racism is. So it makes it really, really hard for them to even have a benchmark about what would be a negative behaviour and what's a reasonable behaviour. For instance, comments like, why would you bother giving an Aboriginal person chest physio? The number of people who've died in custody, either with police, in prisons, with the ambulance or with hospitals, where anyone who's displaying any neurotypical behaviour is immediately classed as being drunk, on drugs and you know, self-inflicted harm, mm. when many are having strokes, myocards, a whole plethora of things that if they were not Aboriginal, they would have been checked out first. An example is Miss Jew who died in Carnarvon a few years ago. She'd gone into the police station to complain about her partner's domestic violence and she had a bench warrant out for parking fines. Uh, She'd been bashed by the boyfriend and the police arrested her because of her parking fines and she was kept in a cell and over about 36 hours she complained of terrible pain and feeling sick and they took her to the hospital in Carnarvon three times and she was brought back with the oh she's just making it up she's faking it it's probably drugs but no one took her temperature and she was acutely febrile and as she became more disorientated they put it down to some sort of substance and no one took her blood pressure And it turned out, of course, she had septicemia from a fractured rib from 48 hours before. That meant that she died in the police cell. So those sorts of things really say to me, if she'd been non-Aboriginal, they would have taken her blood pressure at the hospital. They would have taken her pulse. They would have taken her temperature. They would have triaged her and not just assumed because she's Aboriginal that she's affected by drugs or alcohol therefore not worthy of being managed in an appropriate way. I see racism at school level. I see racism when I take my granddaughters um, when they were little to the supermarket there. One is uh, quite dark-skinned, one's light-skinned. And if I had my dark-skinned granddaughter with me, when I stopped at the supermarket checkout, they would make me unload all the things in my bag, take the kitties out of the stroller, They would search the stroller and then they would get me to take the children's nappies off to see that I hadn't stolen anything. And this was just racial profiling. My reaction to that was to stop taking my three-year-old granddaughter to the supermarket, which meant she missed out on experiences. And it wasn't until she was about five I realised that I took her sister to the shops, but not her, based on the fact that the racism that was just inherent and unspoken in the system had made me do a terrible thing, which was to let a little kid miss out on the joy of going to the shops. I hope that our listeners are 
rightly filled with disgust or even disbelief at hearing these stories, Maz. I know for a fact that I had friends at uni, you know, who were told, what nationality are you, Aboriginal? Oh, no, that can't be true. You're too beautiful to be Aboriginal. You're too smart to be Aboriginal. You know, these comments are still thrown around. And, you know, I, I'm not old. I'm, I would like to think of myself as being relatively young. And yet these comments are still pervasive in our society. And it might not be everyone, but they still do exist. So I, I want to thank you, Maz, for sharing some of those experiences because they are hard, but they are real. And that is truth telling. That is understanding our current context. And we can't move forward without doing that. In terms of moving forward, Maz, what are some strategies, some examples of things that our listeners can do to close the gap, to reconcile, and to ensure that they're not perpetuating these racist ideas? I think it's really just have a good look and see where your operating system is. If you see an Aboriginal person, do you automatically pull your handbag closer? Because not every Aboriginal person is going to steal your handbag, but it, it's a common collective action. I was really pleased with Collingwood being brave enough to actually get in people who were experts in the area and just do a review of their operating procedures in relation to how they treated their Aboriginal staff and players. And it was a terrible shock to them to find out that the club was absolutely wrapped with institutionalised racism and that they were unaware that it even existed or the impact it was having on their Aboriginal staff and players and on their image. So that um, I think just by reflecting, I don't think that there's any purpose, anything to be gained by blaming people around racism. I think it's just based on it's not something that is ever discussed generally in society outside Aboriginal or coloured people of colour. And if you read some, there's some good books around about what racism looks like, how to call it out. Young people, young physios often tell me, not the Aboriginal ones, the other, the non-Aboriginal ones tell me that they're working in practices or in hospital situations with older non-Aboriginal health professionals who have those entrenched views that come from the 50s and 60s about Aboriginal people. Remembering that it wasn't till 1967 that Aboriginal people were counted in the census and by default had to be citizens of the country. It wasn't until 1996 here in Western Australia that Aboriginal people were taken off the Flora, Fauna and Native Peoples Protection Act. So it's just an education process and Aboriginal people are really wanting reconciliation to work. So if someone says, you know, hand on heart, I don't like what I hear, I don't like what I see on the news and I want to be part of a better quality of life for everybody who lives in the country. Just look up Reconciliation Australia's website, Healing Foundation's website, and if you're into research, the Lewitcher Institute is the only community, Aboriginal community-controlled research institute in Australia, and it is putting out some fabulous stuff. So they're just three easy to access websites with lots of fabulous information on them, better than I can explain. Well, I absolutely love that you provided those three, and I echo your recommendation and think that it's 
very handy to have those practical tips. I think sometimes the reflexive ideas can be harder to practice, harder to put into place, harder to initiate. But at least we do have these recommendations from you to go and look up those sites and to commence that journey into understanding the truth and understanding history. Now, in terms of the operating system, like you were talking about, and being reflexive and reviewing your ideas, your perceptions and things like that, what do you recommend is the best way to do that? Is there a system by which you can measure yourself? Or as you mentioned, Collingwood had some people actually tell them. So they had that outsider input. Do you recommend that our listeners get some outsider input or how do you believe that this should be initiated? I think to go on a quality journey of reconciliation, education is the key. So the APA runs cultural awareness training and that'll be every month online from June, I think. And that's where you can learn about what Aboriginal culture was, the history of the country, and where does reconciliation fit in and how do you be really active in reconciliation without feeling like a goose, I suppose. So I would suggest that before you bring in the consultants to assess your practice, just engage with the APA cultural awareness training. And then there's a second level called cultural safety training, which is about racism and all the theories of racism and how to recognise racism. How if you're a young person, you can call out the crusty dude orthopaedic surgeon who is not giving the same care or communication and instruction for an Aboriginal patient as they do for their non-Aboriginal patient. But how do you deal with that situation? Or if someone's just telling you a really mean racist joke and it doesn't have to be about Aboriginal people, it can be just a racist joke um, to give you tips on how to deal with racism both in your internal operating system and what you see externally. And uh, if you happen to be someone who owns a major practice or runs a major department, there's audits around culture and safety. And the, the buzzword is ESG, which is Environment, Social Impact and Governance. How well is your organisation run? What is the social impact? Is there fairness and equity? in the way that you treat Aboriginal people. So all the mining companies, all the big construction companies are all getting their ESG tickets, a bit like, you know, made in Australia ticks. But that's when people can come in and look. A fabulous website is the National Commission on Health Equity and Safety, and that's built the Aboriginal standards into the health standards that are audited in physio practices, medical practices, hospitals and health centres. And you can look there and it not only tells you what your standard should be but how to implement that standard so that you have a good and safe practice. In the next 18 months, cultural safety training, which is virtually the anti-racism training, has been mandated by APRA. And all physios, undergrads will be learning it as they go through so they can be registered. And everyone who is registered will have to do cultural safety training to enable ongoing registration. So the APRA website, and in fact, APRA's last newsletter had quite a big section on cultural safety and physio. 
that was the uh, Prophysio newsletter. Now, I'm glad that you've actually mentioned that as I was going to, because the examples that you've given are a great way to lead a horse to water. Uh, and then now we've got the APRA mandated cultural safety component, which is almost forcing the horse to drink now. <laughs> and, you know, whether or not that's positive or negative, obviously we want to inspire and educate people along this journey. But I do think in this day and age that it is important that this is an integral part of our education as physiotherapists. Now, Maz, we're coming towards the end of the episode. But before we do, I want to raise you up on a pedestal if I can, because I know that you have accomplished so much in your career. I want you just to speak to what some of your personal accomplishments are, something that you're really proud of that you've been able to achieve over your career. Uh, this year is my 44th year on the sidelines at Southerners Football Club as the physio. And I'm feeling pretty cool about that, almost being 70, because my co-trainer, Headley, he's 91, and he does the massages. And, of course, we're supported by lots of young up-and-coming people, including two physios who I've known since birth. We didn't have any physios here in the country when I moved here some 40 years ago. It was 200 k's to the next physio. And I made a commitment that every year I would encourage at least one kid at the high school to do physio and come back and live in regional and rural areas. And we're at something like 52 physios have been produced over the 40 years. And a lot of them live down here and or live in country towns. So I'm really proud of having built a base so that people can be treated when they need to be treated, particularly children. Um, my postgrads were in chests and kids neuro and Bobath, and to see children with cerebral palsy and other disabilities in um, regional areas getting zero treatment because it's too far and too expensive to go to the city. Another thing I'm proud of, in 1992, I was overwhelmed with kids with cerebral palsy here locally, and I'd heard about this therapy in Hungary, which at that stage was a communist country, and we saved up, or we did lots of you know, stalls and things to save the money to send one child, Leah, and her mum to Budapest to have therapy. In Hungary, in a lot of the um, socialist countries, they don't have welfare, so the kids either can fend for themselves or they just die in a corner. And uh, Leah came back so much improved after three months, I then negotiated with the Soviet government to release one of the therapists to come here for three months and treat all the children in the local town. There was about 15 of them. And they all did extremely well, and we trained up a team of local mums and dads and citizens to do the ongoing therapy. Ildiko had to go back to Budapest because they kept her husband and children there. I then negotiated after the communist regime was toppled and negotiated to sponsor them as migrants to Australia. And since then, therapy centres have been set up right around the country as Ildiko has brought more of her colleagues from Europe. And people, children do really well. Paedotherapy is a combination of physio, OT and teaching with this communist slant to it that, you know, you will get up and walk. And it was fabulous to be involved in that. 
and to see that that's an ongoing legacy. And I guess the other one that I'm really proud of, physio, sport and Aboriginal people just go together, I think. And in 2000, I was one of the people to establish the Clontarf Football Academies, using football as bait to attract Aboriginal boys to school. (laughs) And we had 25 boys in one academy, and we just passed the 10,000 boys mark. We've got academies all around the country and 140 academies placed in high schools, Catholic and independent schools and state schools where boys are being picked up in the morning, they go to footy training, they have a shower, they have their breakfast and they have to attend school. So we don't do the school part, they have to go. But we've set up club rooms like a footy club on every campus and they come back at morning tea time and hang out with the team and lunchtime and then they play footy after school. And uh, we're now on our second generation and it's really interesting to see the boys who were the first group through who are now about 38. Their kids are all, of course, all about 17 and those kids are doing really well. They've attended school every single day of their lives. Often they're at private schools and doing extremely well. The dads have got really good jobs and Uh, not needing to be part of any sort of welfare system. They're able to pay for their kids' education. So for every Aboriginal person that you help to get a job, to get a career, to get a qualification, that influences three more Aboriginal people to be into the workforce. And this cascade, uh, it's the same as um, the current COVID virus. So if you have COVID, you'll give it to three people, basically. And over 10 iterations, that's 56,000 people you've potentially given COVID to. But if you apply it to, I helped three Aboriginal people to be inspired to be physios, be inspired to work in health, they will go on and influence three people. And so it goes on. So being involved in education, being inspirational, caring about that Aboriginal kid at the footy ground or the netball court, and just being inspirational and talking about physio and what a great career it is. Sadly, we've only got 145 Aboriginal physios in the country and about 35,000, I think, physios altogether. And we could do with a lot more Aboriginal physios, but even if they're not going to be physios, to actually continue with education. So what the research shows is the most disadvantaged group of people in Australia are Aboriginal young men. They fill our jails, they have the highest suicide rates, all that sort of thing. And they're the most undereducated. And it's related to uh, the total lack of self-esteem these blokes have. And if you go back to the 50s and the 60s or even 1900s right through, if you're an Aboriginal man, a proud Aboriginal man, and the authorities come by with a piece of paper and take your children away, then... Most relationships, husband and wife, don't survive if a child dies by some sad circumstance. But if you have eight or ten of your children taken away, the relationship is destroyed, the people turn to alcohol and drugs, and their self-esteem is absolutely wrecked. And at the same time, the boys who've been taken away grow up with no men in their lives. And so they become unable to go through law and to understand what their place in the world is and all the psychology that goes with that. So we started on boys 20 years ago, but you'd be pleased to know, just off to the side, I've worked really hard to ensure the same amount of funding goes to girls' programs. 
So the Dave Weirapunda Foundation, the STARS basketball program, there's about 12 of them. So if you're interested in Bill's Aboriginal programs, I think we've got 14 entities now offering programs to girls. And they run from modelling programs that have, you know, big flash beauty competitions at the end funded by Rio Tinto to the tune of a million bucks where you're pumping into the girls all the self-esteem stuff through to supporting kids to go to private schools or go to the States and play basketball, that sort of thing, and certainly AFL women's. But um, they're always looking for volunteers, so if you have a passion in that space, they're running out of Melbourne. Dave Wirapunda Foundation uh, runs out of Collins Street, so I know that they would love someone to help them with their Deadly Sister Girls program over there. And I guess the last thing I'm proud of is to be made an honourable member of the APA. I think the APA is a really great organisation and certainly from when I first graduated and became a member through, although we've had some volatile history along the way, convincing people that reconciliation is the way to go. It's been an absolutely superb organisation. So there's lots of resources through the APA like the podcasts that you're doing and other resources for people who are on their Aboriginal learning journey. Wow. (laughs) I don't really know... How much else can be said after that, Maz? The two words that were just spinning in my head were grassroots and longevity. And that's what you communicate to me every time I speak to you is, you know, you don't need to engage in all of the politics and things like that to make a change. You can just inspire the kid at the local school, the local sports club, et cetera. And that longevity, how much you've done is so inspiring to me early on in my career uh, and even before I had graduated when I met you. Now, we're coming towards the end of the show, sadly, sadly, and I think all our listeners will agree with me there. I'm going to ask a couple of quickfire questions that just summarize, again, a little bit more about you, but also points that our listeners can take from this and search, look up, or continue to be inspired by your answers to them. So the first question I have is, what is your favourite Indigenous word and what does it mean? Mudich, probably. Mudich means really good, fabulous, having a Mudich time. I've got a Mudich program here. Yeah, it's a word I, I really, really like. So I use that a fair bit, yeah. I like that it alliterates with your name. So it's like Mudich Marilyn Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the next question that I have is, what is one word that sums up to you what reconciliation or closing the gap looks like? Happiness. I don't think much else needs to be said to that one. Happiness. It's a great answer. And I think it can be unpacked by our listeners' minds. Now, the final question I've got for you, Maz, is what is your favourite Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander artist or band of choice. Tell us a song by them and why it's your favourite. The one I like is Saltwater Cowboy. Listen to it. It's just gorgeous. <laughs> no intrinsic sort of metaphysical reason. I just like the beat. Um, <laughs> so that's the Pigram Brothers. And if you want to see something really deadly, look up the Brumpy Band. The lead singer, he passed away some time ago. But he was the black Mick Jagger, and he is too deadly for words. Oh, Maz, I wish, I wish we could keep on going. It has been such a pleasure to speak 
to you, to hear from you, to glean this wisdom from you. And I'm sure our listeners will just be on their seats wanting more. Again, from us here at the Deadly Physios, I just want to say thank you for your time. Oh, look, thank you for taking time to chat to me. Cam, you're an inspiration in your own way for old girls like me. Makes us happy. Woodich. Thanks for listening to The Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. To learn more about this episode's guest and The Deadly Physio series, head to our website at australian.physio forward slash The Deadly Physios. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.